You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, May 30th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. In his book, God is Not Yet Dead, Czechoslovakian philosopher and eventually martyr, uh, Vytaslav Gardovsky, he, he wrote this. I read it and someone else quoting it. I didn't read his book, unless you'd be too impressed with that. I don't have many Czech philosophers on my bookshelf. Um, he wrote this. The terrible threat against life is not death, nor pain, nor any variation on the disasters that we so obsessively try to protect ourselves against with our social systems and personal strategies. The terrible threat is that we might die earlier than we really do die before death itself has become a natural necessity. The real, the real horror lies in just such a premature death, a death after which we go on living for many years. The real horror is an internal death. What Jesus would refer to as a whitewashed tomb. Spiritually, dead men walking. Dead, but still breathing. And because of this, we're susceptible to being tossed to and fro, most vulnerable to every wind of doctrine and idea and challenge that would blow across our life. Some of you might be familiar with a man named Eugene Peterson, maybe most familiar from his translation of the Bible known as The Message. As a pastor, probably even more grateful am I for him than for this message. I'm grateful for a trilogy of books that he wrote that are called A Pastoral Theology uh, because most people don't realize Peterson also served for 35 years as a local church pastor. And in one of his books titled Run with the Horses, Peterson spoke about this life this living though dead on the inside. He literally opened this book up this way. The puzzle is why so many people live so badly. Not so wickedly, but so inanely. Not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There is little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent in our culture. We have celebrities, but not saints. Famous entertainers amuse a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out the aggressions of timid conformists. Petulant and spoiled athletes play games vicariously for lazy and apathetic spectators. People, aimless and bored, amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets any headlines. Peterson said we can continue in this cultural landscape to look around for what it means to be a mature, whole, even blessed person. And we don't find much. These people are around. Maybe as many of them as ever but they aren't easy to pick out. No journalist interviews them. No talk show features them. 
They're not admired. They're not looked up to. They don't set trends. There is no cash value in them. No Oscars are given for integrity. At year's end, no one compiles a list of the 10 best lived lives. In light of this reality, the pressure to just conform with the norm, to just conform with the herd is staggering. Anyone daring to swim against the tide of what Peterson is describing is bound to face challenges, is bound to face difficulties, is bound to face being ostracized, is bound to face rejection. It's not just true in the world. It's particularly true in the church. The pressure to live godly and righteous lives the pressure, the fear, the temptation to twist and distort the calling of God on his people in order to just get along with everything else is immense. But the pressure isn't new. Timothy was facing it in his reality in Ephesus. This is why Paul was writing this letter to him. But it existed long before Timothy as well. If you've been reading your Bible with us, according to our community Bible reading program, our CBR reading, then you've spent the last bit of time from your Old Testament reading in the book of Jeremiah. So when I said that Eugene Peterson started his book, Run with the Horses, and began to read it, something might have clicked in your mind because that title is actually taken from the life of Jeremiah, from Jeremiah chapter 12. And I have been utterly amazed, and I shouldn't be because you see it all the time, but amazed at the consistency of theme and message in the entire story of the Bible. Just how similar, particularly in the early parts of the book of Jeremiah, uh, the pressures, the temptations, and the struggles facing Jeremiah, how similar they were to the very things Paul was writing about and the very things you and I have been talking about. In Jeremiah's life, in particular early on, the, the opposition to the calling of God was growing. Jeremiah himself was getting increasingly frustrated at the difficulties and the pressures he was facing. The pressure on him to just conform and give in to the religious norm, so to speak, in his day was immense. And so in Jeremiah chapter 12, he, he gives us one of those great, why, O oh Lord, prayers. Why are the wicked continuing to prosper? Why do they keep seeing fruit? When are you going to deal with this? And he describes those he's talking about as those in whom the Lord is near in their mouth, but far from their heart. There was a form of godliness while denying the reality of the power of God, very similar to what Paul was talking to Timothy about. And after he got it all out, the Lord responded to him. And God responded to Jeremiah in chapter 12, verse 5, this way. He said, Jeremiah, if, if you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, how will you run with the horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? In those days, the banks of the Jordan River were, were like forests. There were thickets. And in those were wild animals and beasts. Archaeologists have even uncovered the bones of lions in that area. 
What God is saying to Jeremiah is, you think it's been hard. You think it's been difficult already. You think it's been unjust. Son, you haven't seen anything yet. If the small stuff is threatening to knock you over, if if you're running a foot race with men and they're already outrunning you, what are you going to do when they let the horses run? If you're in safe country and you seem to stumble and fall, what's going to happen when you get in the thickets with the beasts? You think it's been tough. It hadn't even gotten hard yet. And Peterson, writing like only Peterson can, in his book, Run With the Horses, is really a commentary on the life of Jeremiah for God's people. Peterson says this, I want you to hear this, because he can say it so much better. He looks at these verses and he says, life is difficult, Jeremiah. Are you going to quit at the first wave of opposition? Are you going to just retreat when you find that there is more to life than finding three meals a day in a dry place to sleep at night? Are you going to run home the minute you find that the mass of men and women around you are more interested in keeping their feet warm than in living at risk for the glory of God? Are you just going to live cautiously or are you going to live courageously? I called you to live at your best and to pursue righteousness. It's easier, I know, to be neurotic. It's easier to be parasitic. It's easier to relax in the embracing arms of the average. It's easier but it's not better. It's easier, but it's not more significant. It's easier, but it's not more fulfilling. I called you to a life of purpose far beyond what you think yourself capable of living, and I promised you adequate strength to fulfill that calling. Now, at the first sign of difficulty, are you ready to quit? If you're fatigued by this run-of-the-mill crowd of apathetic mediocrity, what will you do when the real race starts? The race with the swift and the determined. What is it you really want, Jeremiah? Do you want to shuffle along with the crowd? Or do you want to run with the horses? Peterson said Jeremiah would weigh his options. He would indeed count the cost. He'd toss and he'd turn in hesitation But when he gave his response, it wasn't verbal. Peterson said it was biographical. His life became the answer. I will run with the horses. Friends, what Jeremiah needed in the mounting opposition to the life that God has called him to What he needed was to be strengthened. What he needed was for his spiritual spine to be braced. He didn't need to be coddled. And God gave him the answer he needed, not necessarily the one he wanted, because God was far more concerned with growing him, growing Jeremiah, than he was in just changing all the problems around him. God could deal with those. And as the story plays out, God does deal with those. In fact, you read even at the end of this last week, God's new covenant promise, the way in which God would fully and finally in his son bring these things about for his people. God can deal with that. But what was most important was dealing with Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was going to have to decide if he was going to stay in the race 
if indeed he was going to trust in the Lord to mature him, that he might be able to run with the horses. Thrive for the glory of God when the real difficulty came. I say all of that because that's Paul's aim in 2 Timothy as well. Everything we've been talking about and everything we'll see this morning isn't new. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. The Apostle Paul, remember, is on death row for being a follower of Jesus, for preaching the gospel. This is his last known letter that we have any record of him ever writing. He's, he's speaking for strength and health in the long term for God's people. And he's writing to strengthen Timothy and the church's spiritual spine. And even now, through this same letter, to strengthen our spiritual spine. That we might stand firm. That when the race goes from foot races with men to races with horses, we might be able to stand firm in the truth. Even willing to suffer for it. See, Paul is more than aware at the power of the pull towards conforming. And towards all the pressures that would be pressing in on Timothy and the church. In fact, he's reminded us already, if you've been with us, all of that pressure, all of that difficulty to conform to the desires of the world around you, all the pressure to shape and to twist the message of the gospel, to rub the edges off in order that it might be more appealing to people's desires, all that pressure to just get along so you don't have to deal with the pain that may come, all that pressure is real. And it's only going to get worse. Paul knows it. He's felt it. He knows what Timothy and the church is going through. He knows that it's easier to relax in the arms of the average. That's the nature of peer pressure. But to run with the horses, to thrive in the difficult times to the glory of God, it, it's not easier. But Paul knows it's way more fulfilling. This is what Paul is trying to do and bring Timothy's heart and eyes and mind and confidence back to. And so this morning in chapter 3, verse 10, we kind of pick up in the middle of a letter, and we've said it before, sermons often get in the way of, of good stories and good messages. It's, it's a letter, and all the thought is flowing together, but from chapter 3, verse 10, all the way through chapter 4, verse 5, which we'll get to next week, Paul makes three very distinct, but you, Timothy, statements. And they're very distinct statements that Paul makes in his ongoing effort to strengthen Timothy. And now through Paul's letters, strengthen our spiritual spine. So remember, there, there are gospel imposters in your midst. They're spreading flawed doctrines and twisting the truth. These lies make people feel so good, so smart, but they're causing harm. They're threatening to capsize the faith of many. They're leaving people dead, though not yet dying. But you, Timothy. You, however, here's your first clear contrast that Paul is making for Timothy and the church between them and the lovers of self and money and pleasure rather than God, the people he's spoken about already. You, however, you followed my teaching. You've been with me, Timothy. Remember, Timothy traveled with Paul for years. 
Timothy has seen all that Paul has gone through for a long time. Lest you forget, Timothy is mentioned as a co-author or present with Paul in at least six of the letters that Paul's written to the churches. Timothy has been with Paul over the long haul of at least Timothy's adult Christian life, and he has seen Paul wrestle with the truth of the gospel and wrestle with the implications of the gospel in various scenarios. He's heard Paul pray for people, weep over people, preach to people, evangelize, disciple. He's seen Paul in a multitude of scenarios take the riches of the gospel and work to apply them to the realities of life. And we'll see in a minute that he's followed it. He's not just observed it, but as a disciple, he's taken it on as a pattern and an understanding for his own life. Timothy, you've seen me. You've followed my teaching. You've followed my conduct, how I live. Like, you've seen that I'm not one thing here and another thing over here. You've seen that my life actually matches the things that I'm saying. You've followed it. You followed my aim in life. You know that what motivates me, Timothy, what gets me out of bed in the morning, what guides the decisions that I make and where I go and what I do is the overall aim to see the name of Jesus preached in places and to people who have never heard it before. Paul told the church in Rome, I'm in debt to the barbarian, to the Gentile. The gospel leaves me in debt to them. I've got to see the name of Jesus brought to them in any way. You've seen what animates me. You've seen my aim in life. You've seen my faith. Not not just the content of my faith and not just the object of my faith, not just the realities of Christ crucified and raised for our justification, but you've seen the subjective, the personal nature of my faith in him. How it shapes me. How it secures me. How it guides me. You've seen the fruit That it's produced my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Those are all the neighboring regions from where Timothy grew up. Persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy, you've been with me. You've studied me. You've seen me. You know my life. You know the ins and the outs. Nothing was held back from you. Nothing about me was kept back from you. You've seen it all. And what did you see? What did you see? What did you see come out of me? What did you see reflected by me? I mean, in your own hometown, they stoned me and left me for dead. What have you seen in me, Timothy? Timothy, you've seen a life changed by the grace of God. Don't forget, Timothy, what you have followed as a disciple, not just a student, but as one who has studied and observed and taken the pattern on for yourself, you have seen a gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded life. A life not willing to relax into the arms of average, mediocre and the herd, but a life defined by relaxing into the arms of God's transforming grace. You've seen it, Timothy. I'm the chief of sinners. You've seen it. But God. But God. 
Friends, Paul wasn't afraid to hold his life out for inspection. He wasn't afraid to offer his life as a pattern to imitate. As he proclaimed the gospel, he was willing to do this because Paul fundamentally understood that his life was a product of the gospel. It's why he could so boldly say to the church in Corinth, follow me as I follow Jesus. Not follow me because I've got it all figured out, not because I'm perfect, not because I get everything right, but because my eyes are fixed upon and my life is set in the footsteps and the dusty patterns of this one, of Jesus. The only one in whom their life was worthy of imitation, though we could never imitate it perfectly. Jesus, the one who loved people to the point of death, forgiving sinners that we've only earned and deserve his judgment. Friends, this Jesus is the only one who's ever walked on the face of this earth living the life that God desired us to live. He lived a perfect life of joyful obedience to the Father. And then he took that life and he offered it up as a sacrifice on the cross, dying the death that you and I deserve to die for our rebellion. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the tomb, demonstrating that God accepted this sacrifice as sufficient. He accepted this sacrifice of his son and his life as sufficient on our behalf so that anyone who would own their need for him would turn from their sins and trust in his son, trust in Jesus on their behalf, can be forgiven. And do you know what that means? It means we get a new life in Jesus. We get a new way of living based on the righteousness of Jesus, animated by his love, not our own love for ourselves, characterized by his grace, not our effort. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Christianity is not fundamentally about comparing ourselves to other people and then congratulating ourselves for being better than them. Know that the godly life is a life of utter dependence on the grace of God. Friends, if this sounds like the kind of life you would like to have, please know that we would love nothing more than to talk to you about that. Maybe you came this morning with a friend that you were invited you here. Ask them about this when we leave this morning. Find myself, find one of the pastors, find someone else out there on the stairs as we walk out. We would love nothing more than to talk to you about this. If you're actually joining us online this morning and you want to know more about this, there's people online right now who are there ready to pray with you and talk with you about this. Because there is nothing more important than grasping that in Jesus, not only do you find forgiveness, but you find a new life. Friends, as we listen to Paul this morning, church family in particular, are you willing to ask yourself, what kind of life are you holding out for others to see, to inspect? You know, Paul's been going on and on about the threat of gospel imposters and empty, cheap offers of grace and salvation that can never provide. And, and maybe in your life, and even maybe as a whole in this congregation, the the threats of cheap grace and, and gospel imposters may not be the fruit that we all collectively so easily bite on around here, but considering what Paul did say about his life, I would ask, is, 
your life demonstrating patience, love, and steadfastness towards those who, who may, in a manner of ways, disagree with you on something. I mean, I wasn't biting into the, to the imposter of progressive Christianity in the last two weeks, but even last night, I couldn't demonstrate these things to my kids. What kind of life are you holding out for others to see? Michael Lawrence is a pastor in Portland, Oregon, and he was, he was talking about a different topic, but it came to this portrayal of our life before others. And he asked these questions, and I found them very helpful. Do Christians in your life get a second chance with you? Is there a group that's still saddled with your estimation of their failures that might date back a month, six months, a year, even a decade? He said, what about your kids? When they do something stupid, which is what kids do, is their first thought about you that you're going to be there to help them or that you're going to be there to be angry at them? Do you tend to frame people in your mind in light of their faults or their strengths? Do you have any warm relationships with people with whom you agree on the gospel but you disagree on secondary matters? What kind of life are you holding out for inspection and even imitation? And at the same time, what kind of model are you actually chasing after? Are you patterning your life around a model that exalts having the right answers about the truth, having all the right facts about the truth, or are you patterning your life on one who has built their life on the truth in a way that produces the fruit of faith, patience, love, and steadfastness? Paul's getting about the idea of what it means to be an ambassador of Jesus. It's one of the most fundamental identities we have as Christians. We are ambassadors of our king, meaning the lives we live, the aim of life, the thoughts, the decisions, the desires, the manner of living is meant to reflect that of the king. That's what an ambassador does. What is it we're holding out? What is it we're trying to pattern? To be ambassadors of Jesus means we have to actually know him. Not just know about him, but be growing in a depth of intimacy and relationship with him, so much so that in our own hearts and our own lives, we know something of his compassion, of his gentleness, and of his holiness. Friends, if we're just patterning our Christian lives over the loudest talking heads on YouTube and talk radio, trying to have all the right information so that we can blast out every moral argument known to man against anything that may raise its head without growing in a deeper intimacy and humility with the one who has saved us. If we're getting all the right information, but we're not moving from arrogance to humility, we may actually be threatening the faith we think we're protecting. Paul's talking about what it is to be an ambassador of Jesus. And he's reminding Timothy, you've seen this in me. You've seen what a gospel-centered, grace-driven, mission-minded life looks like, and you've owned it. 
But don't be naive. It's going to get harder to live it. If you're going to run with the horses, if you're going to thrive when it really gets hard, if you're not going to stumble and fall flat on your face when you get to the thickets, you've got to realize that this kind of life is going to bring difficulty and persecution. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, all who want to run with the horses in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on, they're going to progress. That's the word. They're going to move forward, progress. But they're going to progress from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It sounds like a broken record if you've been with us for a number of weeks now, but Paul keeps coming back to this reality because he understands how tempting it is for us to try to find ways to get out from under it. So he keeps coming back to Timothy and the church. Listen, it's going to be hard, and it's going to get harder. Don't be naive about this. In fact, earlier, he, he wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica, and he told them this. I found it, I found it interesting because of, of who he actually sends. He said, he said to this church, we sent you Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ. And here's why we sent him to you, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by your trials because you know quite well that we were destined for them. We're destined for them. We're destined for slander. All who want to run with the horses, to live a godly life in Christ, you're, you're going to deal with gossip. You're going to deal with betrayal. You're going to deal with rejection. For some of you in here, to live a godly life in Christ in this day may mean losing your job. It may mean losing your friends. It may mean losing your social status. It may mean losing a manner or a portion of your income. And what Paul is reminding Timothy and the church and God is reminding us now through this letter is these aren't optional add-ons to the Christian life. Following Jesus doesn't give you an order form like Chipotle where you say, I want this, I want this, and I want this, but I don't want any of that. That's what I was meaning when I put that in there. One of my daughters came in with me while I was working yesterday, and she saw my notes, and she said, not Chipotle? What do you mean? Like, I was somehow going to slander Chipotle. So there, there's the explanation. The persecution and the hardship, it's, it's not optional. Friends, you, you can't expect a world that has been built on the foundation of rejecting God's rightful authority you can't expect a call to repentance, a recognition of inability and sinfulness to be warmly received by people who have rejected him wholesale. That very call and that very reality is, is an, it's an utter violation of our current contemporary cultural constitution that defines truth and authority in entirely different ways. Friends, if you're going to live this godly life in Christ, if you're going to run with the horses, if you're going to thrive when it gets really tough, you've got to own the reality that it's going to get harder. And for some of you, the hardship and the difficulty, it, it might first rear its head at work. For others, it, it might rear its head at home. 
For others, it might rear its head with friends. Know around the world, your brothers and sisters who are striving to live a godly life in Christ as well are facing it in a varied number of ways that you and I haven't even had to deal with yet. That's not guilt, that's just reality. People are walking out of gatherings like this, being killed and buried for being here right now. And they're willing to do it. Don't be naive, okay? It's going to get hard. The forms of difficulty and persecution and suffering, they may vary. But the, but the reality is still going to be there. And what Paul was aware of, what God was aware of when he spoke to Jeremiah, the very thing we're aware of even right now, with that reality comes the temptation to alter the trajectory of our way of living, to alter the fullness of the message that we're proclaiming, to find some way to get out from under the potential pain that comes with living a godly life in Christ. The pressure to just go along is so easy. The temptation to just go along and avoid the difficulty is so strong. But Paul, once again, isn't going to leave the church there. He reminds Timothy and the church, as subtly as it is, that God will bring you through it. He's not going to keep you from it, possibly, but the persecution and the difficulty won't get the last word. See, Paul's sitting in prison. He's waiting at any moment for someone to come and to take him out of that Mamertine prison where he's chained, that dark hole right there, to take him out of it, to take him outside of the building, to take him down the street on the edge of the city and take his head off. He's waiting for it. It's coming. And it's going to happen very soon after he writes this letter. And even his impending death doesn't cause Paul to qualify anything that he just said. From all of these, the Lord has rescued me. Because even the one that I'm awaiting, the one that's going to happen at any moment, will only hasten my time to be with Jesus. Don't be naive. It's going to get hard. But he will see you through them. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't give in to the fear. God has given you not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love of self-control for this very thing, for this race so that you and I may share in the suffering that comes by the power of God, that we might be able to run with the horses. This is Paul's continued drumbeat to Timothy and the church. But now we've got to see his second but you. Look at verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, here's how you do it. Here's what running with the horses starts to look like. Here's what walking through the thicket and not stumbling and falling begins to look like. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Right? What's Paul's 10-step program for running with the horses? For living a godly life in Christ? Continue doing what you're doing. That's it. Continue. Continue in what you have firmly believed. Continue in that which you have learned and God worked that conviction out in your heart. Continue in the object of your faith, Christ crucified and raised for your justification. Continue in your deepening confidence and faith in who he is and what he's done. Continue. 
It's ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view to the glory of God. That's how you run with the horses. Continue in what you have believed. And here's the confidence that you can have in what you've firmly believed, lest that confidence start to erode in the face of all the pressure that's mounting all around you to conform or to change, to get out from under the persecution and the hurt. Here's the confidence you can have. Remember from who you learned it. Your mom, your grandma, myself, you know the character of those who have taught you. You know we weren't one person here and another person there. You know that all this stuff wasn't just stuff we believed in our mind, but it had no impact on our life. You saw the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lives, up close and personal. You've seen the character that it produces in our lives. You've seen the transforming power of God's grace. Here's the confidence you can have in what you learned and firmly believed. You can see the character that it produces and the life that it produces. And you can see, verse 15, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. As your mom and grandmom taught you the scriptures, as you learned of the God of creation, as you learned of the God who was the object of Abraham's faith, as you learned of the holiness of his law, the cleansing his sacrifices provided, as you learned of the ongoing cycle of sin in the lives of God's people, but God's ongoing deliverance of them through the stories of the judges, as you heard of God's continued faithfulness to his people and his promises, even when they were in exile for their sin and disobedience, as you heard all of these things, God was preparing you for the significance of, for the power of, and for the fullness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in whom all of those things find their fulfillment. These sacred writings, Timothy, are able to instruct you in a right relationship with God through faith in his promised Messiah, Jesus. Friends, this is the point of the Bible. There are a lot of religious writings. There are a lot of philosophical works that promise enlightenment, that promise morality, that promise various codes of conduct, but only the Bible reveals Jesus. Only the Bible shows us God's promised Messiah. Only God's word and God's spirit working through his word open our eyes that we might see Jesus, the one who brings us into a personal relationship of love and forgiveness with God. Friends, the point of the Bible isn't ethical formation. The point of the Bible isn't personal enlightenment. The point of the Bible is salvation. The Bible is fundamentally about Jesus. And yes, in God's common grace, we can read the Bible and we can get ethical information. We can distill leadership gems. We can even get a a manner of primeval and ancient history. But until you read the Bible as the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you're still misreading it. As one writer said, it's akin to using the Harry Potter series as a travel guide to England. You might get from one place to another sometimes, 
But it's not the point. Continue, Timothy. Continue, church. In the life-transforming scriptures, they alone give you wisdom that leads to faith in Jesus, which brings salvation and transformation of life. The very thing you've seen in me, you've seen in your mom, you've seen in your grandmother, you know in yourself. Continue in these things. They can do this. They can produce this because all of it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I told the earlier service, if you've grown up in the church at all, been around the church at all, you've memorized these verses probably, you've probably heard sermons on these verses, had Sunday school classes on these verses, but they're always cut out of their context. You haven't heard wrong information, but Paul says these things to Timothy kind of as a crescendo in this moment of a letter where he's trying to strengthen Timothy's spiritual spine and resolve. Pressure is mounting to get out from under the persecution and the hurt that's going to come from trying to live a godly life in this day and age. The imposters are just going to go from bad to worse. And the temptation to try to twist to avoid it is only going to get stronger. Continue. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believe. The sacred writing, the scriptures that are able in the kindness and power of God to make you wise into salvation. Why? Why are they able to make you wise into salvation in Christ? To bring a power by the work of the Holy Spirit to transform you increasingly into his image and likeness. Why? Because they're God-breathed words. That's the nature of the Bible. What Paul is reminding Timothy is that these very scriptures come from the inmost nature of God himself. And if they come from the innermost nature of God himself, it means they must be a reflection of his character. And if they're from his inmost nature, if they're breathed by him and they reflect his character, that means they must inherently then be true because he is true and trustworthy because he is trustworthy. Because of what they are by nature, they're to be trusted. You can know they won't mislead you. They're not in error. They won't take you in the wrong direction. They won't fail you tomorrow. They're not going to get you to a point where they can no longer carry you. But because they're his, because they come from his innermost nature, because they reflect his character, because they reveal him to us as only he can, a direct revelation of himself to us, his creation, it means they have a unique authority over us. It also means they provide for us the surest foundation to build our life upon. Here's the confidence you can have, Timothy. Continue. Here's how you run with the horses, man. Stick with what you've known and what you've learned. The very words of God breathed out for you because they're profitable. Because they're profitable in a way nothing else imaginable is. They're profitable for teaching. That's the big word he's going to explain in the rest of what he says. They're profitable for teaching. And here's what teaching looks like. For reproof. 
Do you know what it is to reprove someone? Or to be reproved by something or someone? It simply means to have an error in understanding, an error in judgment, an error in action exposed. That's what it means. Quite literally, we do it, I told the earlier service, we do this all the time. Since we've owned this building, it's happened at least a hundred times. I've been outside and I have had to reprove someone driving the wrong way on this one-way street because it's so confusing. To reprove them is to go, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. This street goes this way. You are in danger. You're actually potentially putting other people in danger. This is wrong. You're going the wrong way. To reprove someone ultimately is an act of love. Though today, when we think about being reproved, we don't tend to receive it that way. You know, in a culture like ours that so exalts self-esteem, that has been so steeped in the idea of the importance and the value of how we define self-esteem. Reproof from a friend, a family member, a loved one, a pastor, reproof from God's word. It's not often received very well. But that inability to receive reproof is actually evidence of our own internal foolishness. That's why Solomon would say in Proverbs 9, reprove a wise man and he will love you because the instruction will make him wiser still. The difficulty to even receive reproof is not an evidence of our maturity. It's an evidence of our foolishness. God's word is sufficient to expose our error, our sin, our waywardness, but it doesn't leave us there. Paul says that it is profitable not only to help expose, but to correct. Correct. It's the flip side of the coin. If reproof is stop, you're going the wrong way. The road goes that way. Correction is saying, hey, this is the way it goes. Go this way. This is the direction to health. This is the direction to safety. This is the direction for well-being. This is the direction to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. This is what it looks like for your deepest and most abiding joy. This way. And Paul says, continue. And hold fast. You don't need to progress in any direction. Stay right where you are. With this thing that alone is sufficient to help you see your need to help you see God's supply, that when it gets really hard, you can run with the horses. His word, if you were joining us in the CBR still, our Saturday psalm has been Psalm 119. You've read that it's this word that's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This word, it's sufficient, is what Paul is saying. Sufficient, ultimately, for training in righteousness for training in right living not just in a micro sense in the x's and o's of particular decisions it does that in a lot of areas in a lot of ways but paideia we talked about it a couple of weeks ago it's a training on the macro level of understanding the world 
of our place in it, of the story in which God is writing, so that as all these other false narratives begin to try to come in, as they try to continue to worm their way into the lives of God's people, like he said last week, it's this word that is sufficient for training you in understanding, in right living, in right thinking, Friend, do you come to God's word and expect him to reprove you? Do you come expecting him to expose your sin? Do you come expecting him or even wanting him to change the desires of your heart? Or do you open up God's word and you look for ways and come with the expectation for him to justify the life you want to live? The desires you already have. Do you want him, knowing who he is, knowing the intimacy and the relationship that he has offered out, that he holds out, that he promises and he gives to us through this word? Do you want him to shape you? Do you want him to change you? Do you come to him in his word, in some sense with your life wide open, Reprove me, expose me, help me see my error, help me see my my wayward thinking and living, show me the path to joy, show me the path to security, show me your son, help me see, do you expect to know him? more deeply when you come to his word? Do you want him to continue to work in you by his word and his spirit to shape you into the image and likeness of his son? Are you coming to see Jesus that you might become more like him? My wife and I were talking about this this week and just the difficulties with this and the decades of living with our Christian faith, and she was reminding me that without the intimacy that God desires with us, without that growing depth of relationship with him, how can we even rightly begin to approach his word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than any surgical scalpel imaginable, able to pierce and divide soul and spirit, thought and intention. Is there any intimacy in our relationship with God if we don't approach this God-breathed word first saying, cut me, cut me? We were sitting there talking about it and she said, cut me is the first step of actually enjoying grace. And we thought about how many years we've missed it. Friends, if we're just coming to this book to justify our lifestyles and decisions or for some of us to just gather ammunition for the battles we want to go out and fight while while not growing in the relationship and the intimacy that God has offered to us through these God-breathed words. 
how could we ever expect to be able to run with the horses? When things get really bad. Continue, Timothy. Continue, church. This is sufficient. It's enough that you, man and woman of God, would be complete. Growing to maturity. Cultivating your soul to reflect the character of Christ. Living godly lives in Christ, even when it gets harder, that you would be complete and equipped for every good work. Nobody has explained that better to me than John Piper, who wrote the the scriptures, these God-breathed words, day after day. They reveal to us the greatness and the beauty and the power and the wisdom and the mercy of all that God is for us in Jesus, so that by the power of his spirit, we find our joy in him and the ways of sin become distasteful. Indeed, they become ugly and repugnant. Most deeply, the way the Bible equips us for every good work is by changing what we find satisfaction in so that our obedience in life comes freely from within, not by coercion from without. It does this as we read it, meditate on it, memorize it, and mediate over it every day, coming to see Jesus more clearly. Continue in this, Timothy. Continue in this, church. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. Continue in God's trustworthy, all-sufficient word that alone is able to show you Jesus and train you for life in his kingdom, to live as his disciples and his ambassadors, to give you the lungs and the endurance you need to run with the horses. They're sufficient. And so the call to us as God's people today is simply this, are we going to be people of this book? Are they going to be sufficient for us? Friends, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. Teaching. Reproving. Correcting. And making you together wise. In all wisdom. That alone is found in Christ. Let me pray for us this morning and we are going to respond together to God's word. Father, I know how easy it is for me to not just overlook, but to dismiss the nature and the power of your word for us and to us. It's so easy, even for me professionally, to come to it as a tool. It's a tool of my trade to understand, to analyze, to pick apart, to put back together, to communicate, to explain, and to miss you altogether. Lord, when we say we want to be a people of the book, what it is is we want to be a people whose intimacy with you, relationship with you, is going deeper and deeper through our delight and time with you as you reveal yourself to us in your word. A people who aren't content to get through our day without seeing Jesus without seeing you reveal our continued need for you and your overwhelming supply of grace for us. Let us be these people. Lord, it takes a work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts for that to happen. So that's the very thing we ask this morning for Jesus' glory and our most abiding joy that you would do. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.